Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Under Pressure, where we discuss preeclampsia, its definition, presentation, treatment, and anaesthetic management. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCUM. So we know that obstetrics is a topic very commonly examined, both in the short answer questions and the viva section of the exam, and a common obstetric topic, both in the exam and in daily obstetric anaesthetic practice, is preeclampsia. So a typical question would be this short answer question. A 24-year-old with a breech presentation at 35 weeks gestation has severe preeclampsia and requires delivery by lower segment cesarean section. You witness her having a short, self-limiting, generalised seizure in the delivery suite. Outline the key points of her management prior to theatre, 50% of the mark, and describe the changes you would make to your usual general anaesthetic technique for her lower segment cesarean section, 50% of the mark. Mm. Now, the pass rate for this question was only 49.8%, which I found quite surprising Mm. for a core topic. Mm. So we thought we should cover it. I know I found this topic a bit confusing when I was studying because there are lots of different guidelines with slightly different definitions. Now, today we'll use a few different resources and reference these in our episode notes. So hypertension in pregnancy is defined as a systolic blood pressure of greater than or equal to 140 millimetres of mercury and or diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 90 millimetres of mercury. These should be confirmed by repeated readings over several hours. The classification of hypertensive disorders in pregnancy encompasses the following. Firstly, preeclampsia through to eclampsia. Secondly, gestational hypertension. Thirdly, chronic hypertension, which can be essential, secondary, or white coat. And lastly, preeclampsia superimposed on chronic hypertension. Today, we are not going to go into the diagnosis and management of gestational hypertension or chronic hypertension. We are just going to focus on preeclampsia. It should be noted that the presence of proteinuria used to be considered mandatory to make the diagnosis of preeclampsia, but advice has changed on this since 2014. So what exactly is the definition of preeclampsia? Well, preeclampsia is a multi-system disorder unique to human pregnancy and is characterized by hypertension and involvement or one or more other organ systems and or the fetus. The diagnosis can be made when hypertension arises after 20 weeks of gestation and is accompanied by one or more signs of organ involvement. Usually any organ can be involved, including the kidneys, the hematological system, liver, brain, lungs, and as we mentioned before, the fetus. Preeclampsia is common and occurs in 2-3% of all pregnancies. It should be noted how variable the presentation of it can be. Preeclampsia can present with proteinuria, oliguria, DIC, right upper quadrant pain, headache, hyperreflexia or pulmonary edema, to name uh, just a few. A full list of symptoms, signs and pathology findings associated with preeclampsia can be found in the references in our show notes. 
Now, defining severe preeclampsia is difficult. Ideally, a definition would make it easier to identify women needing more intensive monitoring and treatment, and those women and babies at risk of adverse outcomes. There are various classification systems, but none of them have proven to be especially sensitive or specific. A consensus statement published in 2014 suggests that some of the factors determining more severe preeclampsia include the HELP syndrome, impending eclampsia, worsening thrombocytopenia, or worsening fetal growth restriction. Just a reminder, HELP syndrome stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, uh, meaning the transaminases, and low platelets. Often only two out of the three features are present. That's correct. So any woman presenting with new hypertension after 20 weeks gestation should be assessed for signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, which will largely be the domain of our obstetric colleagues. After this, focus shifts to the timing of delivery, and this is often where we get involved as anaesthetists. Timing of delivery depends upon the severity of the preeclampsia and the gestation at which it prevents. There are generally two forms of management, immediate management, where delivery is planned within 48 hours, and expectant management, which refers to managing beyond 48 hours with maternal and fetal monitoring. Because gestational age is strongly associated with fetal morbidity and mortality, expectant management is desirable at earlier gestations to improve the fetal prognosis. Unfortunately, however, up to 40% of women at 34 weeks presenting with preeclampsia are unable to be managed expectantly, and the mean duration of prolonging the pregnancy is less than 12 days. Prior to 34 weeks gestation, antenatal corticosteroids are often administered, and magnesium sulfate may provide neonatal neuroprotection. At the later weeks of pregnancy, between 34 and 37 weeks gestation, the HIPATAT-2 trial suggests that immediate delivery might reduce the already small risk of adverse maternal outcomes, but significantly increases the risk of neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah, so in other words, I suppose it's suggesting that you, you know, try to manage the preeclampsia and prolong the pregnancy by as long yeah. as possible to reduce neonatal It's always a balance neonatal. of risk, isn't it? Yeah, no. that's right. And it really comes down to the individual um, obstetrician mm. and the individual institution in which you're working about when that decision will be made. Absolutely. With regards to treatment of blood pressure, all blood pressures over 160 systolic and 110 diastolic should be treated due to the risk of cerebral hemorrhage and eclampsia. The treatment of more mild hypertension is controversial. Treating these patients prevents the progression to severe hypertension. However, it actually doesn't reduce the risk of preeclampsia or adverse perinatal outcomes. First-line antihypertensives include methyl dopa and libidolol, and your institution will generally have some guidelines with their preferences. But of note, ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II receptor blockers are contraindicated in pregnancy. Progression to full-blown eclampsia remains rare in Australia, comprising 0.1% of all births. Not all women will present with the classical warning symptoms of headache, visual disturbance or epigastric pain, and seizures may occur pre-, intra- or postpartum. The four main aspects of treatment for eclampsia are firstly resuscitation, so airway breathing and circulation plus administration of a benzodiazepine if required to terminate a prolonged seizure. Secondly, prevention of further seizures with magnesium sulfate. Thirdly, control of hypertension and lastly, delivery. The drug of choice for prevention of eclampsia is magnesium sulfate, given as a 4 gram loading dose followed by an infusion of 1 gram per hour. With regards to who receives magnesium for what symptoms, this seems largely institution-specific given that it's difficult to know which patients will deteriorate from preeclampsia to eclampsia. After delivery, preeclampsia resolves itself, with all clinical and laboratory abnormalities going away. Hypertension, however, may persist and require treatment for several months. 
So you've said that magic word there, <laughs> delivery. As anaesthetists, we will often be called to assist with either vaginal deliveries or cesarean sections, which means we should discuss the anaesthetic management of women with preeclampsia. We've already got the baseline knowledge from our earlier discussion, and now we have to apply our knowledge of obstetric anaesthesia to a preeclamptic, or in the short answer question we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a clamptic patient. There is a concise British Journal of Anaesthesia anesthesia education article regarding hypertension in pregnancy and anesthetic management. But keep in mind that the first part of the article contains definitions and criteria that are no longer recommended in the obstetric literature. When it comes to anesthesia and preeclampsia, however, the good news is that our labor epidural is generally great for patients with preeclampsia. By providing a sympathetic blockade as well as good analgesia, an epidural helps with reducing blood pressure and also provides additional ease and speed for an emergent caesarean under neuraxial blockade if required. The exception to this are patients who are already severely thrombocytopenic or those with rapidly dropping platelet levels. It is important to assess the trajectory of the platelet count over sequential full blood counts. The more rapidly the platelets are dropping, the closer to the provision of an epidural you would want another test. In addition, patients with preeclampsia may also suffer from disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC. A guideline is that all cases should have a full blood count and coagulation studies done within at least six hours prior to an epidural, and in severe cases, this should be within two hours. If neuraxial anesthesia is contraindicated, then other alternatives for analgesia and labor may be considered, such as a remifentanil PCA. The inverted commas safe level of platelets <laughs> to perform a neuraxial anesthetic is generally understood to be 80, but this can vary amongst individual practitioners. And like everything, a risk-benefit assessment needs to be made along with the alternatives. If patients with preeclampsia present for caesarean section, which is common, then a variety of neuraxial techniques may be used, including spinal alone, combined spinal epidural, or epidural top-up. However, with evolving and pronounced thrombocytopenia, some of these patients may require a general anesthetic. This is where it's really important to pay attention to how you are going to obtain the hypertensive response to laryngoscopy, because hypertension associated with laryngoscopy has been directly linked with a number of maternal deaths from cerebral hemorrhage. There is no evidence for any particular agent over another, and it is best to use what you are most familiar with. My choice, personally, um, when I'm inducing these patients is I start with alfentanil, about 30 mics per kilogram, which for an average 80 kilogram parturient works out to be 2.4 milligrams, which is obviously a significantly large dose. I also give propofol between 1 and 2 milligrams per kilogram, which gives us 160 milligrams, and succimethonium 100 milligrams. Now, as I'm inducing, I like to warn the pediatrician in attendance that the baby will likely be affected by such a large dose of alfentanil because it crosses the placenta. Yeah, so this harks back to the second part of the short answer question we mentioned at the beginning. How would you modify your general anaesthetic technique? So I would probably just slightly alter things. I tend to do about 20 mics per kilo of alfentanil and probably mm. 2 to 3 milligrams of propofol uh, and then between 0.5 and 1 milligram per kilo of succimethonium. Mm. I think the other things to discuss here, and we've had some requests for, you know, discussing the details about how we do these mm. cases. Mm. So the other thing about a GA caesarean section, and, and most of you listening will have done some of these prior to particularly a part two exam, but it does depend where you work and it's how much obstetric anaesthetics you've done before the exam. Of course. So the other thing 
think with a general anaesthetic, as you were saying about discussing with the paediatricians, um, the alphagenol crossing the placenta, mm. is that um, you know we make sure that the uh, patient is prepped, draped, positioned, mm. they can place their catheter while the patient is awake, such mm-hmm. that the exposure of the fetus to the general anaesthetic agents is as short as it possibly can be. Absolutely. So a little bit like a AAA in that sense. So prep, drape, catheter, everything ready to go. Mm. Once the tube is in and CO2 is confirmed, mm-hmm. then the surgeons can start straight away. And so Absolutely. hopefully the time from general anaesthetic to delivery is one to two minutes at most, which should reduce the effects on the fetus. Yeah. And certainly something that I know we probably both do as we're performing these types of general anaesthetics on these patients is as you're physically intubating the patient, your tech is hooking the circuit up almost instantaneously. Mm. The second you see CO2, you just tell the obstetrician to start. And they're literally there with the scalpel holding it a centimetre of the above the skin, just ready to fly. So... Yeah, and, and that's all sort of goes not just for general anaesthesia for preeclamptic patients, of but course. for GACs in general. Of course. A lot of people use uh, nitrous oxide. It probably is the one area where I do use a bit of nitrous oxide mm. now to wash in the sevaflurane and provide a higher MAC more quickly. Yeah, I can Cesarean section is um, fairly rough surgery, so mm. it's quite stimulating. Mm. And generally, you wait to give a bigger dose of opioid until after the baby has been delivered. Mm. Mm. So, you know, nitrous, sevo, um, MAC of at least one, obviously. Mm. Bismonitor is advised, and then uh, once the baby's out, you can, you know, often give us 10 milligrams of oxycodone straight up, or mm. um, perhaps in the beginning of my training, we were giving morphine back then mm. as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it's it's interesting, and the modifications really, as we discussed, is mm. is understanding that the you know these women can actually bleed into their brains if they've mm. got preeclampsia, and you mm. really want to obtund the response to laryngoscopy, and indeed to the incision because that mm. can also cause a you know a dramatic rise in blood pressure. Absolutely. If your patient has had magnesium sulfate, just remember that this will potentiate your non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drug. So you should monitor the depth of the neuromuscular blockade and the reversal of the neuromuscular blockade to make sure that it is adequate to wake up. Obviously, rocuronium and sigamidex would be a great choice here mm. if you have access to it. Mm. In addition, patients with preeclampsia are at increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage, but your usual handy ergometrine is generally contraindicated due to mm. the hypertension that it causes. Mm-hmm. This means that you may need to consider, along with your treating obstetrician, other treatment options such as mesoprostol or giving the ergometrine in divided intramuscular doses. Now, we'll take this opportunity just to revise the doses of some, some of the common neutrotonics. Ergometrin comes in 500 microgram vials and may be given as 250 microgram intramuscular injections or 250 microgram slow intravenous pushes, and these doses may be repeated. It's important, even under normal circumstances, to give intravenous ergometrin very slowly. And as I mentioned before, it is contraindicated in preeclampsia at most, most times. Misoprostol is given sublingually or more often per rectum in postpartum hemorrhage and it's given in doses of 800 to 1000 micrograms. 15-methylprostaglandin F2-alpha, or known as its brand name carboprost, can be given either intramuscularly or intramyometrially, knowing that intramyometrial dosing is not recommended by the manufacturer. The IM dose is 250 mics and the intramyometrial dose is 500 mics, often given in four divided doses injected into the four quadrants of the uterus. Okay, well, this brings us to the end of our episode now. Preeclampsia is common, so it's great to revise the definition, presentation, treatment, and anaesthetic management of patients with it. Now, Kate, 
coming to the end of our episode. What have you learnt this week in anaesthesia? Well, this is kind of non-clinical, but I've learnt that if I'm on my own in a theatre and we're having a busy day where there might be a, potentially a wait to get a break, I should bring some snacks with me to avoid hypoglycemia. <laughs> Fair enough. It doesn't go well when I don't eat till one thirty or 2, unfortunately. <laughs> Do we wear our cranky scrubs that day? Oh, yes. A little, bit of, a little bit of hanger going on. Um, and you? Now... I learned that there is a much better way of giving constructive feedback than the infamous infamous crap sandwich. Mm. And for those of you who don't know what the crap sandwich is, it's the provision of something really positive, Mm. then you give your negative feedback, and then you sandwich another piece of positive feedback on the outside. Mm -hmm. So hence the crap sandwich. Now, when I'm trying to give feedback and suggestions for improving practice, I always ask first if it's okay to give feedback before initiating that sort of discussion. When I get the okay from whoever I'm supervising, I then talk in very, very neutral terms. So, for example, something like, I've noticed that you do this in this particular setting. Have you ever considered this instead? It may mean that you could avoid complication X that occurred today. That sounds good. And Ooh. we also should plug the ANSCA educators course too. Absolutely. Um, which I should probably do again. I did it when I first became a consultant, but mm. it does provide some really more sophisticated ways to give feedback. Absolutely. I'm halfway through. Yeah, practice. I'm halfway through it and oh, it good. is really, really useful. Mm. Really, really useful. Yeah, I think I think you need to revise that as yes. well. So very, <laughs> very good content. So uh, that's what we have time for today. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions for topics for interviewees, you can email us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and you can find us on all your usual podcast platforms. We love receiving your emails and the suggestions for topics and they're all fantastic. We're in the process of following all of them up so watch this space for podcasts addressing these topics soon. As always, thank you so much for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.